So there, Chaz, I got a multiple choice question for you. How do you feel about Love that? Love multiple choice questions. Yeah, let's go. All right, great. Let's do it. Here's the question, and there's only one right answer. Is Chicago? Your choices are A, is Chicago, B, is not Chicago, C, was Chicago, or D, has not Illinois. What do you say, sir? Is, is Chicago? Not, is not Chicago. Is Chicago? Is not Chicago. Today on the first album themed louder than sound, we're discussing Solkoffing's initial offering, Ruby Vroom. Welcome to everyone's favorite show, Louder Than Sound. Our first and only question for the contestants is... What's louder than sound? Theoretical noise particulates from the 15th dimension? What's louder than sound? Uh, nothing, Alex, because of course this is a theoretical question. What's louder than sound? What is two brothers, who are mostly similar, but sometimes dissimilar taste in music, asking each other to listen to and absorb some of their favorite music albums based on idiosyncratic themes that they likewise force each other to consider? That's louder than sound. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Louder Than Sound, a podcast where two brothers who have sometimes similar and sometimes dissimilar taste in music force each other to listen to and absorb albums based on themes they likewise force each other to consider. The theme for this episode continues to be first albums. Chaz, uh, what do you got to say about first albums in general? So first albums in general, we did our first episode with also first albums. Those two themes are connected. It was very much on purpose. Yeah. And I got, I got into Tom Waits' Closing Time from 1973. But we talked about how this was an interesting thing to try to come up with just one first album. Because some mm -hmm. are really good and some are really terrible. And so it's just a mixture. So I had really considered heavily, uh, I almost went with Elliot Smith, was probably my second choice. Yep. I heavily considered TV on the radio. Mm -hmm. Brian Eno got mixed in there because mm. he's a super fave. I thought about Interpol because they have a great first album and then didn't really do anything with their career after that, as far as I, as, in my opinion. Rosemary. What else did you consider here, uh, So I just kind of came up with five off the top of my head for this because, uh, as we discussed last week, everybody has a first album. It's kind of a big, kind of a big sandbox to play in. Uh, but in no particular order, I at least considered Pearl Jam's 10, uh, Fleet Fox's self-titled de self debut, uh, Juliana Barwick's The Magic Place, which would have been really fun to talk about. I really like that one. And then Menomina's I Am the Fun Blame Monster. I thought about some bigger ones, then I thought about some smaller ones and some kind of interesting yeah. ones. And I, and I think I kind of landed on something in between here. I chose Soul Coughing's Ruby Room. Uh... And, uh, and so I'll just talk a little bit about Soul Coughing as a band, and we'll get into the album. So they were a four-piece band consisting of uh, Mike Doughty, or Doughty, depending on who you ask. He's the singer and lyricist. <laughs> uh, he would go on to some acclaim, if not brief fame, and um, some cult love as a solo act. Uh, Mark Degley Antoni, the keyboardist and the person that ran all the samples, which are important to the to the music. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Uh, Sebastian Steinberg, the bassist, also hugely important to the sound of yeah. of Soul Coffee. We got, a drum, we got a drummer left, right? Oh yeah, here he comes. His name is probably I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it's Yuval Gabay. When you said a four piece, I was trying to think of what the four different guys did <laughs> in the band. Right. I can only come up with three at first. Right. And then I, I, 
if the singer is only singing, then that that makes sense. That's what he's he was doing. doing. Something else. Yeah, and I think he might play guitar too. I think there's he some does, guitar in there. There's some guitar, and I think he's responsible for that. So, um, all of his guitar parts are like kind of one one guitar part. Soul coughing has been described as quote willfully idiosyncratic, and I say that's an apt description. Would you not? Yeah. Yeah, I do. They're very willfully idiosyncratic. They started out at a place called the Knitting Factory in New York City, um, which was a sure. jazz improv hotbed, where their lead singer was a doorman. I heard you say last episode that Tom Waits spent some time <laughs> as a doorman. So he was this, a doorman when he when he made his move. This is an all doorman themed uh, batch of episodes here, um, and Soul Coughing ended the way they started with a deeply strange but undeniably groovy mix of jazz. Samples, hip hop, electronics, and noisy experiment experimentalism. I can't say that word. That sounds right. Uh huh. And uh, and I'd say on that note, um, Soul Coughing is pretty singular in their sound. But I'd say if they remind me of anyone, it would be early to mid nineties Beck. Um, yeah, if, I can see that. If you had to make a comparison, which I don't think they sound a lot the same, but they did arrive roughly at the same time, um, and they kind of had this interesting, um, interesting hip hop kind of. Uh, kind of influence on them both. Yeah. Uh, Dowdy himself described the band as, quote, deep slacker jazz. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also apt description. Of I think so, too. Deep slacker. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Good one. Good one. Uh, they burned hot and bright starting in New York City. They had a couple of alternative hits from later albums, and they broke up in the year 2000 after three pretty great albums, uh, but more unfortunately, years of feuding over songwriting credits and publishing. So I guess it was a deeply um, bad relationship as a band, even though, you know, they kind of, they only had three albums, but um, they had some hits there. Um, Doty would go on to say that the band was an abusive relationship and emotionally disconnected, and that it might not have been a coincidence that he got sober of alcohol and heroin once they broke up. So like, <laughs> so, oh. sounds like, it sounds like every... Everyone may have got what they wanted. We got some good music, and he didn't die of heroin abuse. So hey, good for him. Good work. Nice um, of personal note to us, and you particularly, just because you live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and, and I do. You, you apparently know everything about it, especially from the 90s, <laughs> uh, the band was exceptionally and weirdly well-received there in Minneapolis. Okay. Um, they were reported to regularly perform for audiences five to ten times larger than in other cities. Like... Now, weirdly this is, big there i got something to throw in here because i you know, listened to this album and um and the sound like was so similar i knew there were a couple songs that i knew by them and i looked up to figure their hits so their big hit was circles yeah i yeah. don't need to walk bow, around bow, in bow, circles bow, walk bow, around bow, in circles bow. anyway yeah. uh the two of us being brothers here uh grew up in wisconsin but just very close to the twin cities was right on the border and so we got all of our radio out of the twin cities oh yeah i knew the song like nobody's business and I was playing it, and my wife had not the slightest clue what this was. She'd okay. never heard it in her life. I was thinking, like, how would you not know the song? It was just everywhere for a while. Yeah. But she grew up in eastern Wisconsin. She grew up, you know, closer to Green Bay area. And uh, it just wasn't a thing over there, apparently. No. But well, sure maybe Shack was here. And maybe, and maybe that was this Minneapolis thing. Maybe it was a huge I hit don't know. regionally right. in Minneapolis, and so that's why they could draw the crowds they did. I don't know. Because their other big hit, the Super Bon Bon. Love that song. That's maybe my favorite. Soul coughing song. Step aside and let the man go through. Yeah. Let the man go through. Too fat, fat, you must cut clean. You gotta take the <laughs> elevator to the mezzanine. Chop, change. 
<laughs> so that song I very much do too, but again, Clyde didn't even double circles, which oh, that's funny. Like was a gigantic song. Hey, this is all coming together here, Chaz. This is yeah, it is. is. It okay, is. Um, so now that you live in Minneapolis, you might you might really appreciate that the I don't band. Live in Minneapolis, but I do live very near to Minneapolis. Okay, too. well, we're just going to say that you do. Yeah. Uh, let's not give uh, your address on the podcast. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's not do that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, but now that you live very near Minneapolis, you might you might be very uh, aware of a very prestigious honor that the band um, that the band received. Um, it's a it's an award that journalist Steve Marsh called uh, quote what might be the most prestigious public honor an artist can receive in Minneapolis. So here's here's your multiple choice question, Chaz. What is this great honor, this incredible local <laughs> award that Soul Coughing received? Uh, uh, is, it, is it A, a star on the outside mural of famed nightclub First Avenue? Mm. Is it B, an official commendation from the Prince Foundation for Sexy Music? <laughs> is, it, is it C? You don't know that's not the answer. C, a key to the suburb of Maplewood and Mendota Heights. Whoa. <laughs> or D, a Pioneer Press newspaper, Best Bands of the 90s plaque. These are all extremely <laughs> local examples that I um, I came up with three of them. One of them's real. What did they win? I'm going with the first Avstar. Yeah, you're correct. You're correct. That's a pretty that's yeah. a pretty big deal. I thought I might have got you with the Pioneer Press newspaper, Best well, Bands Well, I mean, of the that was the plaque. only other one that was even possibly in the running, but there should nobody, be, cares, about, there should... Care, nobody <laughs> cares about those Pioneer Press plaques, okay? <laughs> If it was Star Tribune, oh baby. <laughs> well, then we're talking, baby. <laughs> now we're now we're in it. Uh, I think there should be a Prince Foundation for sexy music, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can only assume it's starting over at Paisley Park right now. <sighs> okay, all right. So but Soul Coffee, Soul Coffee did not make sexy music. Let's let's make sure that that's really. I thought some of it. I mean, I might be a weirdo, but I thought a little bit of it was kind of sexy. It's groovy. Groovy can be it's, sexy. It is groovy. If you're yeah, da- if you're dancing, you know. Oh get, yeah. Get in there. Um, so I personally discovered them in probably my sophomore year of college, I want to say. Um, I listened to a ton of music all the time, and my palate was greatly expanded. Um, we'll talk about it on this podcast probably a lot of times. But I met a lot of friends that had different musical tastes and backgrounds. And then, of course, there was Napster and ever and all the legion of uh, low-res Three, imitators. Early 2000, late 90s, early 2000s bootleg. Oh, man. Was I we in... Were both, we were both spoon-fed on Was it. I in deep? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my favorite of the of the imitators was Audio Galaxy. I don't know if you ever messed with that one. Oh, that name sounds familiar. Yeah, it was. Know. It wasn't like one of the smaller ones. It was one of the bigger ones. Uh, but I literally destroyed the computer our dad just built for me. Um, <laughs> like within a year, with sketchy and virus ridden downloads. Um, <laughs> usually, while I was trying to find quote acoustic versions of my favorite rock songs. Um, so I think. And I don't, I, I can't pinpoint like if one of my friends was into soul coughing or what, but I, I discovered them kind of completely, uh, but also woefully incompletely at the same time. And what I mean by that is I found a whole bunch of soul coughing bangers that I liked, but not in any particular order. I wasn't really aware of, you know, what albums they were on. Uh, it was live tracks mixed with studio ones and albums blurred together with outtakes and the whole, the whole download, you know, quagmire. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I sorted it out, um, not the least of which because of my wife, Brooke, who was my special lady friend in college. Uh, but she had <laughs> she had two of their... Do you have to put it like that? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's how, the du- that's how the dude puts it in the Big Lebowski, so that's oh, that's, that's what true. I go with. <laughs> it still makes it sound sketchy, you know? Like, my girlfriend, your special man. Lady, your special, my special, special lady, lady friend. friend. <laughs> well, she was then, but now she's my wife. 
and she had two of their albums from her time in high school, so she was ahead of the she was ahead of the curve on that. So shout out, Brooke. Um, the one she didn't have. She, she brought you so coughing, Elliot Smith. She just. I was... know, I know. She's unstoppable. She's unstoppable. <laughs> uh, Tim McGraw. What did I bring you? Wilco. <laughs> well, what did I bring you? Flaming lips. Flaming lips. Yeah, you did bring me Wilco. Uh, the one album that Brooke did not have though was Ruby Vroom, which is what, what we're talking about here. Interestingly, I mean, two out of three ain't bad. Don't get me wrong. Uh, so the album was released on September twenty seventh, nineteen ninety four. It was recorded at the Sunset Sound Factory in Hollywood, California. It was well-received critically, earning a bunch of kind of four out of fives and B pluses, mm-hmm. um, but not exactly a hot seller, especially given the mid-90s alternative boom that made it possible at all for a band like that to make an album on a, on a major label. Right. Or, um, I thought that it kind of collapsed a little bit by then. 94? What do you, what do you think? Well, 90, okay, yeah, no. No, 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 no. I think that was the no, height, wasn't it? Yeah, I suppose it was. Because that's yeah. the year Kurt Cobain died and everything. I mean, because right. that was the big, like, the whole grunge thing came in, and right. these nobody bands got signed all over the place, and some of them did stuff. And yeah. But it was yeah, also, okay. it was exactly. also like, uh, popular weirdo music. Like, back, yeah. Odalay came out that year. Yeah. Um, yeah I'll yeah, keep yeah, mentioning him just because I he stuck in my mind with Soul Coughing, but it was that kind of, like, this stuff yeah. would never be popular at all now. I'm no, sure. you look at like the late '90s when the boy bands were right. They destroyed explosive everything. Explosive, and it was yeah, and there wasn't as much of these smaller bands actually getting major label attention. Yeah, and uh, this this small band here was on Slash Records, which was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, so it was kind of a major yeah. label adjacent kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, I think it's enjoyed a good life as a cult classic, though, um, and the band is a cult classic itself. Um, so it's one of those records that aged, has aged well and gets that B plus average bumped up to like an A minus over time. You know, I think people re re look at it and they're like, oh yeah, that was really good. Um, so the official fifth member of the band is Chad Blake, and I'll spell Chad for you because this is a not a <laughs> not a common spelling for Chad. I uh-huh. think it's Chad unless it's to Chad. It's T C H A D. Chad Blake. I hope I'm saying that right. Has worked with the likes of Elvis Costello, Pearl Jam, Tom Waits. Shout out to our other uh, first album theme. Cheryl Crow, Timor Burnett, The Pretenders, Los Lobos, Suzanne Vega, Annie DeFranco, The Bangles, Sweet, Bonnie Raitt, Al Green, Tracy Chapman, Fiona Apple, U2, and The Black Keys. So he's... Dang! I can't say I've ever heard of him, but I guess he's kind of a big no. deal. Kind of a big deal. Yes, so. And uh, he's kind of a big deal because he's a maverick experimenter, and he tried a bunch of crazy stuff um, with soul coughing on this album including using a binaural microphone, which creates a 3D surround sound effect as you're recording it, uh, sticking, sticking a microphone in a car muffler, um, having, Mike okay, Doty yep. s- having Mike Doty sing into a cheap amplification system called an auja uh, uh, from India, which is essentially a huge bullhorn atop a stick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I'd say there's a handful of really identifiable traits about the album. Um, yeah. they were, the band was, uh, really cool about utilizing samples, which kind of swirl in and out relentlessly, um, behind and beside the tracks. Um, Wikipedia identifies the following samples on the album. Raymond Scott's Powerhouse, Toots and the Maytals, Howlin' Wolf, The Andrews Sisters, The Roaches, uh, and Mark D. Digli and Tony, when not using explicit samples, uses quotes on his keyboard in the original parts, um, such as from the theme from Courageous Cat, which I guess is, is that a cartoon or something? I didn't know what that was. Uh, Thelonious Monk's Mysterioso, Bobby McFerrin's Opportunity. 
Um, and I'd say that this is the through line between them and back in the nineties. Um, and I think the difference, I caught, I caught the Andrew sisters quote in there. Did you really? Which one was that? That was the, Oh, the lemon tree. Anyone else but me. Oh no, no. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and I'd say the difference between them and Beck is that Beck completely constructs his songs on Odalay, at least from, from kind of sly samples and uses them foundationally. Whereas soul coughing is generally like their original quote unquote, but they tack the samples in the margins and they kind of supplement things more than more than relies on them. Um, so I'd say all of the members are extremely identifiable and foundational. Um, and I'd say they come out swinging on their first album. They never really sounded very different than themselves. You know, this was like Uh what they sounded like. Um, and so like, uh, uh, the drumming can be super hot or sensitive. Um, Doty is extremely one of a kind. We'll get to him in just a minute. Um, and Tony has his way with all those samples um, which actually meant something different in these pre-digital days. Like, this was all had to be recorded live, so he had to be pushing mm-hmm. buttons and putting them in there and syncing them up and lining them up. And then I'd say, you know, like, weirdly, the most identifiable member of their music is Sebastian Steinberg, the bassist, because I don't remember hearing a lot of upright bass back then. Say, this wasn't, I, that's why I was hearing this, and I was trying not to read too much of the band because I was waiting to, like, learn it sure. from you. Yeah. But it sounded like an upright bass to it me. It is. It is. And this, they came from this um, this jazz hotbed, like, improv jazz. So yeah. he was out there, like, while somebody's singing, like, <laughs> scat poetry or something. Uh-huh. Um, and so he kind of he brings that into the music, but it's really funky. Like, he, he, yeah. he, he keeps it real funky. Um, it's kind of a real novelty that isn't gimmicky. Um, so we can't go any further without explaining uh, good old Mike Doty. So um, he was known as Am Doty back then. And uh, uh-huh. there's, of course, a long history of singers and performing performers using, you know, stream of consciousness lyrics and stuff like that. But I defy you, Including Chad. Beck. Including Beck, including Bob Dylan, including <laughs> many others. But I defy you to find a more actual stream of consciousness lyricist than Doty. I mean, Beck, Beck maybe comes close, but Doty doesn't make any sense whatsoever. At any time, no. no, it's 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 out there. Like, but it's kind of in a it it works within the confines of the music, despite it being absolute gibberish. But it's kind of an alchemy. It ends up being really effective to the point that you think it actually means something to you. Um, and it catch if it catches you right. And um, I could also see how it can be precious or annoying or grating, especially uh-huh. since his singing and cadence style aren't exactly beautiful. Um, but it does it does work for me. Um, what what did you think about his lyrics, Chaz? Did you find any like meaning in them as you were as you were I listening? I did. No, no. I wrote uh, absurdist circular lyrics with kind of a sing talk rap delivery. Yeah, it reminded me of beat poetry. Yeah, that's what I put down in my notes. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's that's kind good. of like a William S. Burroughs. I mean, without all the sex and violence. <laughs> but yeah. that style, of, like where it just doesn't make. It's it's yeah. It feels almost like cut up poetry. Poetry or maybe not that because right. the, the phrase all makes sense. The sentences are sentences, so it's not like cut up poetry in that you're like rearranging and the verb and noun are in different places. It wasn't like that. But yeah, what he's saying doesn't make any sense. No, no. And as a uh, and as kind of a um, uh, kind of a, an example of that, uh, one of my favorite tracks, uh, uh, standout tracks on the album is Casio Tone Nation, um, yeah. where the band does this bit starting with the lyric, "The five percent nation of." So he keeps saying the 5% nation of, um, and so it's the 5% nation of Marlboro, the 5% Marlboro. nation of Corduroy, Pay-Per-View, Nipple Clamps, Milton Bradley, Cassiotone, Lake Edna, S-A-S-E, which I don't know what that is, 
lemony fresh, chocolatey delicious, lumps in my oatmeal, harmful free radicals, and oxygen cocktails. He says all of those things after the five percent nation of, and still, and it, but it bangs though. <laughs> what a banger! Love that song. It slaps. <laughs> it totally slaps. <laughs> Uh, so other standout tracks are uh, Is Chicago, Is Not Chicago. Uh, I think it's called like Wedding Story or something like that. I don't know. No, oh, I, was, I have a wedding story. Um, I was at, I was at uh, you know, after I got married, we had like this fun, I'm a musician, so we had all these instruments out, and the music for the wedding was everyone just coming up, um, uh, taking turns playing and, and having fun. And I, it was and fun. It was I, super I fun. I was there. Yeah, yeah, you might have been. Yeah, I, I saw you there. I saw you there. You were around. You were around. Um, and uh, and one of my buddies came up, um, Greg Davies. Shout out Greg Davies. And he started, you know, kind of improvising. And he and he improvised um, the part from "Is Chicago Is Not Chicago," where it's like "Zoom Zoom is in the room, Bozo is in the room." But he kept saying everybody's name, so everyone he could pick out, he'd be like, "Charlie Beck is in the room," and everyone would cheer. That was fun. Uh, other standout <laughs> tracks, uh, Bust to Beelzebub. Get onto the bus. That's going to I, I had that down as one of my standout tracks. Love also. that one. Screenwriter Blues, which is an actual stream of consciousness poetry rap. Love that one. That's where he's talking about L.A. and all that. Um, and just for a little sweetness with your abrasive jazz bangers, uh, we got the, we got the song True Dreams of Wichita, which is like an honest-to-God slow ballad with lyrics that don't make any sense, but might make you a little teary, nonetheless. Um, so also, also down as one of my uh, highlights. Yeah, True Dreams. He actually sings a little bit on that one, yeah. which is real nice. Um, so as for assigning points, um, as we do on this podcast, um, I'm going to assign points to what I think that you think about it, Chaz. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm for whatever reason, I'm a little surprised that you didn't know this band that well, um, or or almost not at all. Um, they were of sort of mid to major, major cult status in the '90s, um, mm-hmm. and I think they were like a loser type single, even though. They ended up with circles in our area, like a really big national single away from being pretty, pretty big. Right. Um, and they were so odd and alternative that I thought you might have been a fan. But I didn't. I guess we've never talked about Soul Coughlin all that much. Um, they might have they might have slipped by based on our two year age difference because of our age at that time. But who knows? Um, anyway, I'm curious to see what you thought. But I will venture to guess that you'll give it a one point five out of a possible negative five to five. Okay. If I'm off by a little, I'm hoping it will be because you go just a tiny bit higher. So what do you think about it? All right. So my thoughts on Soul Coughing, like you said, I was not plugged into this band. I definitely knew the name. I very much knew the name. It said Soul Coughing. I was like, oh, yeah, Soul Coughing. And I had to sit there and go like, I did that one song. What was that one? The, the, the one. And I looked it up, and I, was, I, didn't, <laughs> I tried one. not to read too much. But that was where I came out with Super Bon Bon and Circles and listened to both and went, oh, yeah, that's the one. Hey. They're both the one. They're both the one. Um, I also, as I looked, the cover of their second album, Irresistible Bliss, which is a horrible cover, by the way. Which one's that one? It's it's just like, it looks so incredibly amateurish. I'm to describe it to you. Let me look it up. Like, the the cover of Ruby Vroom is kind of cool. Ruby Vroom is the one I like. Irresistible Bliss has, uh, there's some, like, puppet on it, and the the soul, where it says soul coughing, looks like it was done on a mid-90s computer by somebody... Somebody's nephew who kind of liked, kind of liked playing around on, you know, on there. <laughs> he likes Fox. Like kind of, it's really a terrible cover. Anyway, all right, fine. that cover is super familiar to me for okay. whatever reason. All right, all right. Um, listening to it, I I was struck by the the, the how unique they are. They're just very like. There's yeah. nothing else that sounds quite like them. Uh, there's the jazzy bass and drums. 
Um, strong grooves with vocals and samples and not much else. The absurdist circular lyrics, I mentioned that already. And it was his delivery, this kind of sing-talk rap. Somewhere in between there, writing me a beat poetry. Um, and actually my wife, you know, when I was playing circles, and she was listening to me, listening to this some. And she uh, she brought something up, which I'm, I'm going to say something provocative, Jake. Provocative? I like. I'm uh, say it anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if uh, soul coughing were something of an influence on some of the rap rock stuff that came not long after oh, that. Oh, wow, that is provocative. Like, there are little, like, I mean, it's not... There's there's major differences. The jazz stuff isn't in there, but the right. the way he delivers it and and his, even the sound of his voice to an extent, um, made me think some of like Incubus and Lincoln Park okay. and Limp Bizkit. Like there was some of that. in Yeah, there. I I could see a little and bit they, of this. And they predate those bands like doing anything that anybody cared about. But but I I, I definitely caught that. That's what my wife thought too. She thought it was some like rap rock song or something. Well, that is provocative. I don't like it. I take I make a I make a hard pass at it, but I can I've never thought of that and I can um if that turned out to be true, if like Incubus was like soul coughing was a huge influence on us, I guess I wouldn't be able to argue very well about it. So. Uh, you know, I don't know. Wow. Incubus wow. seems slightly more thoughtful than They are, they are. Slightly. <laughs> <laughs> I liked them in college too. We'll give you a little more okay with that. One. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll go with that. That's why I said Incubus <laughs> rather than like uh, Oh no, but right. see like the the anger and the like depravity yeah. and the yeah, 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 the yeah, amateurness yeah. is not present yes. in soul is soul. No, no, it's not. No, it's not at all. Um so I really liked the, I listened to the album a few times in depth and, and really enjoyed like the grooves. You really get into it. Oh yeah, groovy. Um, and so I liked that a lot. Yeah, my the two tracks I wrote down as highlights were Bust to Beelzebub. Yeah. Because I don't really, that's like... Get on to the bus. Right. <laughs> and True Dreams of Wichita, which is immediately afterwards. So those Pretty. are the two that yeah, I Yeah, good, good one really to punch there. Yeah. Um, my criticisms of it are the songs start to run together, run together a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The songs don't, and often songs don't go anywhere. And it's one of the things I liked about Buzz to be also above is it has some kind of climax. It, it goes somewhere. Yeah. And most yeah. of the songs don't. Right. They just hit this groove and they follow the groove and then they're done. Yep. Um, so that got to be a little too much here. I also feel like the album is too long. Mm-hmm. It's over an hour long. You cut off. I don't know which ones you cut off. It's not like any of the songs are like, oh, that one stink- stinks. They're all good. Yeah. There's just, too much of it. I know which ones. So, oh, okay. Well, I haven't listened to enough <laughs> well, we, we have the same criticisms. Too long, and certain songs start to run together, and songs don't individually go anywhere most of the time. But I feel like all the songs were individually strong, and I really liked all of them. There's just too much of it. Right on. So I still quite liked it, and I still gave it a, a, a good uh, score. And uh, you you, uh, you hit me right on, Jake. Yeah? Oh! <laughs> Nice. I was kind of waffling between a one point five and a one and a two. But I okay. On the All right. Great. So well, well done, sir. Well, well done. done indeed. So, um, so as we get into it here, we're at the end of my little my little spiel here. We're going to give it a combined score, but um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read what I wrote, and it's I, you and I could have probably written the exact same thing. So, <laughs> my only I already I already said why I like the album. Uh, my only real complaint as we delve here into it, is that it gets more than a little long in the tooth. And for maybe two or three tracks throughout, mostly on the back half, it, like exactly the same. Like they could have just been like one long track. So I think the band sets a high bar for inventiveness, and so anything that repeats itself at all sounds a little bit off. Um, but they still sound like only they can sound. So it's 62 minutes long, as you mentioned. Um, so I'd say get in that time machine, slice off the songs Moon Sammy, Super Genius, even those are good songs, just make them B-sides or whatever you want to do, or an EP later. 
um, and maybe get one or two more out of there and get down to 45 minutes of pure action. And you got yourself yep. like a yep. cult. You got yourself a real cult classic. And you cut, you cut four songs off there. And yep. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, uh, I really enjoyed listening to it. It took me back, but not in like an overly nostalgic way. I was able to, to kind of critique it um, from a place of, um, from, from now. So I give it a, I give it a 3.0 out of a possible 3.0. Solid. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. really liked it. I think I like probably both their albums after this a little bit more, but yeah. I, have, I have no complaints. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a pretty heady start as far as first albums go. Right. So it looks like if I give it a 3 and you give it a 1.5, we have a so we should, score. we should let make sure oh, yeah. uh, people at home know our our uh, pointing system ranges from negative five to five. That's negative right. Five at the bottom end, five to the high end. So three is really quite solid. Yep. One point five, a little more in the middle, but still a pretty good score. We combine those scores together, get the official louder than sound score, which is a four point five, <laughs> yeah. which ties our first episode. So New record. <laughs> They're both four point five total. Official louder than sounds. And I just, I just want the audience to know that probably going forward, every combined score will be four point five. So you know, we're gonna make it happen. What's, no what's what we're gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So if like uh, if I give someone negative five, Chaz is gonna give it a plus nine point five. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if that's breaking, what it takes, breaking, I'll do it. <laughs> breaking the rules. <laughs> All right, folks. So that that is a that's our uh, first album theme in its entirety. Right. Last episode so of this one. So next up is a new theme we're looking at transition albums yeah albums where artists moved in a different direction than what they'd been working in before that's right and i'll be bringing in an album a little more obscure one by a well-known in brazil artist named elza sores and her album her 2015 album Amor do Fim de bando mm. i do not know portuguese and i'm sure i screwed that up entirely and i'm sorry the translation is The Woman at the End of the World, which is a sweet there title for an album. There we go. You screwed it up in English as well, just so you know. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see you next time on Louder Than Sound.